0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. (laughs) All right, thank you, Um, Zoom deity. Let us begin. Today, uh, we're going to be discussing something very special, which is spirituality with regards to activism. That is spirituality with regards to being in the world. Uh, seva, service, action. How is it that a spiritual practitioner ought to relate to society? And it's a tricky issue, since um, a lot of the times there isn't much overlap between the worldview of a spiritual practitioner and everyone else they meet in day-to-day society. So there can be a kind of alienation that is felt by a sincere spiritual aspirant with regards to maybe, let's say, fitting in. But also, embedded in many spiritual philosophies, it, it might seem on the surface like there is a kind of, dare we say it, escapism, a transcendentalism, and idealism, what uh, the Indic scholar George Furstein would say is a verticalist approach, the idea of this samsara, this wheel of birth and death, uh, this reality being something to see past, something to escape, something to end. It's like turning off the TV, realizing after all that it was nothing but shadows upon Plato's wall, you know. And that seems to rubbish altogether notions of service, notions of activism, social justice, being involved with uh, current affairs, so to speak. And therefore, it's important to talk about. And the way in which I hope, God willing, to expound on this topic today is with an appeal to three dimensions. The first is... Uh, ideally the talk is about spiritual uh, uh service or or uh, action as spiritual practice how we can use our seva our service our activism as a means to our own uh spiritual aspirations but before i do that i want to talk about uh spiritual practice as a re- sorry uh service as a result of spiritual practice so there are two ways to look at it spiritual practice as service as spiritual practice and service arising as a consequence or an expression of innate spirituality. So I hope to convince everyone today, you know, by the grace of the divine, that um, the spiritual master is beyond all notions of conventional morality. You know, I want to argue to you that right or wrong as concepts do not apply to the spiritual master. She is completely beyond all such notions. Uh, as Rumi so beautifully said, as Song and I were discussing earlier, uh, there, beyond all your notions of right and wrong, there is a field. Meet me there. Rumi is hinting at a spaciousness that yawns infinitely beyond any notion in the mind. And right and wrong ultimately are notions of the mind so i will argue to you that spirituality is a movement not to end the mind but to feel beyond the feel beyond the mind to dimensions deeper than that you know and hence today's meditation of feeling into the body of feeling into the intuition or the psychic capacity now as we do that we tend to deprioritize all our concepts our abstract ideals and our notions we tend to Uh, lessen the amount of superimposition we do onto reality. We kind of let go of various judgments that previously were so special to us regarding the world or who's wrong or who's right, etc. Now, it would seem that a spiritual master, in Rumi's words, is someone who is a moral relativist? Hardly, hardly. It seems like a spiritual master, by virtue of realizing absolute truth is then able to align every one of her actions in accordance to that truth which seems to just spontaneously effortlessly and consequently be the most appropriate actions aligned to the greatest amount of harmony to to the to the overall harmony of the universe so Ideally, a spiritual master I hope to convey to you is someone who is effortlessly moral, not because she is abiding by some social behavior program known as a code of ethics, but because morality, perfect morality, is a spontaneous expression or emanation of spirituality. You know. All right. And I want to argue a little bit uh, to you as to how that could be. Why is it that spirituality is conducive to perfect action. Now, the disclaimer here, as we often, you know, in in our lectures, uh, start with this disclaimer. Truth, we don't consider... Welcome, Westerfer. Westerfer's at camp. I'm happy you're here. Truth, we don't consider as a concept. Truth is not something you know or something you believe. It's something you experience. It's something you embody. It's something you feel. Realization... Is a word that implies internalization. It implies wisdom. It has nothing to do with intellectual concepts or knowledge. So we must distinguish between knowledge and wisdom, concept and realization. You might all have concepts that you are not the mind, you are not the body, you are all minds and all bodies, yet you don't yet feel that way. <laughs> you know, and the process of going from your concept to going into a lived reality in which each moment of your life is an expression of that truth, that's the work of spirituality. As Vivekananda beautifully uh, coined, religion is realization. It's not belief. And if we investigate belief, we come upon a few startling observations. It seems the conventional definition of belief in many religious communities is just professing verbally uh, the buying into a certain dogma. Yes, I believe in this idea of heaven or hell. I believe in this kind of God. Um, and we call these people believers. And if you don't believe, you're a heathen. Yet, it seems strange when we consider that word faith in its original context. In the Greek, faith uh, is pistis. Pistis is the Greek word for faith. And it seems to have a connotation very different from belief. Now, uh, today, if you don't believe in the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, it's, it's it's heathenism. You know, it's it's kind of left field. You, you'll be excommunicated. No, no. You must profess a belief in the Christ. Yet, it se- peace and blessings be upon him. But yet, it seems like in the time of the Christ, his disciples didn't have to believe in him. They, he was there. You know, he was talking to them. Yet, they were still accused of having no faith. <laughs> The fact that his disciples, fully endowed with the belief, nay, the direct perception of the master, was still capable of not having faith is a distinction between belief and faith. And that's an important thing to recognize. So when the Christ, peace and blessings upon him, says, uh, ye of little faith, he seems to be pointing at a faculty that is experiential, that has nothing to do with the mind or its concepts and can be verified through a certain reasoning of the heart, if you will. And by heart, I don't mean the emotion center. As we've learnt together, emotions are still just thoughts. They're just citta vrittis, just modifications of consciousness. No, we say heart in the Sanskrit, hridayam doesn't mean the seat of your emotions. It actually means a deeper place of knowing. Intuition, perhaps. Wisdom seat. Spiritual knowing, the difference between intellectual knowing in the mananas, in the the, the manas, the mind, versus a deep abiding knowing that might more properly be called gnosis or jnana or wisdom, you know. Okay, so here's my first claim. A spiritual master is any person who has actualized, stabilized, and realized that truth not on a conceptual level, though it certainly does in many instances begin on a conceptual level, but on such a deep level that their life then, from that moment on, becomes a stable and consistent expression of that truth. So to start today's lecture, I just want to maybe look at a few examples. I'm going to walk you through three or four different schools of South Asian philosophy and show you the consequence of those schools uh, with regards to the actual life of those masters that 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 school has produced. Okay, so we're going to start with Sankhya. Now, this is a rather counterintuitive thing to say, but the great masters of Sankhya have been incredible humanists. And for those of you who are familiar with Sankhya philosophy, you might realize a certain irony in this statement. And let me show you why. Sankhya, historically speaking, uh, emerged perhaps around the 5th or 6th century uh, before Common Era, though it's hard to say exactly when. It was formulated first by a university professor named Kapila, uh, who wrote a text or, or sang a text called the Sankhya Sutra. Now, Sankhya is a dualistic school that asserts the existence of two distinct, uh, mutually exclusive principles. The first is Prakriti. Prakriti literally means nature. You know? Prakrit actually is uh, a name for sun- uh, languages that have derived from Sanskrit. So, Sanskrita means uh, intentionally, artificially created. You know, so Sanskrita was a language created uh, with an intention to channel certain spiritual energies. Prakrita, Prakrit means natural languages. So, Pali, Prakrit, those are the languages that people just spoke. In, in, in India, um, particularly in the north, that was distinct from the language of the Vedic priests and the scholars, Sanskrit, you know. So Prakriti, prakri, prakriti and Prakrit are similar in, 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 in uh, etymology. It just means nature. But the word has a very vast connotation. Let's use Prakriti in the sense of universe. Prakriti is the sample set of all observable things. And that includes thoughts, and emotions. Isn't that interesting? It's not just a sample set of things like tables and galaxies. It also includes emotions, thoughts, the personality, which, let's be frank, is nothing more than a conglomeration of thoughts you've held on to um, as you go through your life. So Prakriti includes basically everything. <laughs> everything except one thing. And the one thing that is not Prakriti The one thing that is diametrically opposed to Prakriti, the one thing that stands apart and is distinct from Prakriti is Purusha. Purusha means uh, spirit, is how it's usually translated in the English, but today I'm just going to call it subject or individual or awareness. So the subject is the one thing that stands apart from all of its objects. So remember, All of South Asian philosophy, at least most of South Asian philosophy, is really about profound insights into everyday experiences of subject-object dichotomy. That's really all it is. You see, um, if you want to do philosophy, hello, Tahira, welcome. If you want to do philosophy, you should posit the least number of things on faith. You shouldn't have to take anything on faith, you know. You shouldn't have to believe that there is a guy in the sky keeping a naughty or nice list. You shouldn't have to believe that there is a realm of eternal damnation. You don't really have to look for any rivers of milk or honey. Though they certainly are there, by the way. You know, remember, Vedic religion does not dismiss at all the very real experience of uh, what we might call supranatural realms or subtle realms. You'll see them uh, talked about extensively in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, the bardos. Each of them populated by various beings, some wrathful, some compassionate. You will hear about this re- these realms in Islam, especially in Al-Miraj, the ascension of the Prophet Muhammad on the Dome of the Rock, in which he visits through astral projection various realms of, uh, experience, peopled by different prophets and different beings. You'll read about it in Merkaba mysticism from third century AD, uh, 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 Levant, you know, where the Jewish mystics were traveling through the Merkaba or the chariot through various realms peopled again by various beings. Sure, all of that is, is there. Um, but don't take anybody's word for it. You know, don't believe in these realms, go and experience them. But one thing you will notice is whether you're in a dream, whether you're in a waking realm, whether you've astrally projected to Vaikuntha, wherever your consciousness happens to be. And by the way, it's kind of a fallacy to say your consciousness. I'm sorry about that. Just a convention. You are consciousness. It's not something that you have. Uh, but for the purposes of just keeping it simple, wherever consciousness happens to be, there will always be this principle subject object and the relationship between the two you know so before we even start talking about gods or goddesses indian philosophy is like yeah. let's back the fuck up and just investigate this mystery uh subject object dichotomy what's with that right what's going on there so oh, sankhya welcome anthony namaste brother sankhya says look it seems to be the case that the subject and the object are always separate from one another. All of our suffering comes about as the consequence of conflating the two. Welcome, Grace. And and follow this closely. So I'm going to give you a few arguments now to show you. Um, and by the way, if the internet drops, sometimes it gets a little uh, patchy. I will come back, God willing. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. So... Uh, Two arguments to show you why this is the case. The first one, uh, and by the way, we're doing a little philosophy first, and then we'll see how that philosophy develops into the activism. Okay, so two dimensions. The first argument is an observation of change. You've heard this argument before. It's actually from Advaita Vedanta, but the point is a Sankhian point. So follow this. In order for you to notice change, you must be apart from that change. In other words, unless you leave the Earth, you won't see it rotating. Because you're in the Earth, you don't feel that it's rotating. If you were a water molecule in a river, you might not know the river is moving. It's only by being on the river bank, it's only by being in a place juxtaposed to change that you can perceive change. That seems to be principally true. You know, change is only perceptible from the vantage point of relatively less change. It doesn't have to be changeless. It just has to be relatively less change. You know, so the less changing place enables you to observe the changing place. All right. That's the, the first thing to notice about this world. Einstein, sorry, Newton, uh, formulated this. Uh, in his mechanics. So Sir Isaac Newton would talk about the train and how the laws of physics in a train moving at uniform motion were indistinguishable from the laws of physics in a static, inert train. And that shows that it's equally true to say the world is moving and the train is still as it is to say the train is moving and the world is still. The only reason we're in consensus that it's the train that's moving is because for most of us who are on the platform or in other places, we don't feel ourselves to be moving, you know. And the only way in which we say the earth is moving is by observing some other unmoving things like the sun, you know. And the way we observe the sun is moving is by, again, an appeal to a less moving thing, which is the center of this galaxy and supercluster. Okay, you get the point. So, uh, here's what we notice. Any change that you notice is not you. The very fact that you're noticing change at all implies that you are in a place apart and separate from that change. Does the body? No, so does the world change? Certainly, you know. Um, leave some food on the altar, it decays within an hour or two, depending on if you're in India or in Iceland. But uh, you watch things decay. You watch your loved ones get old. You watch your car get banged up as you navigate LA traffic. You know, you watch things in your life meaningfully change before your very eyes. And you conclude from that, ah, I'm over here and the world is over there. The world is changing, I don't change. I'm this unchanging observer of the world. Uh, Yet, you include in that sentence, observer, the body and the mind. You say, I am the mind, I am the body, and I'm looking at this world. I know that I am distinct from the world. I know that the world is the other. I feel myself to be this, and I feel the world to be that. This, most of us can do. We don't really have a problem with this. This is intuitive. But look at this. Doesn't your body change? Aren't you able to observe the change in the body? You were once a baby, very small, toddling about. Uh, Then you became a young adolescent. Uh, And then you became a young adult. And I know some of you practice Hatha Yoga, so it'll be a very long time before you start to see the wrinkles or the white hairs. But eventually those will come too. And you will notice this youthful body becoming older. What is the body but a continuous stream of flux? Of change. The very fact that you can notice that, follow this closely. The very fact that you are aware of the body changing implies that you are not the body. You are standing apart from the body, watching the body change. You are no more the body than you are uh, the world around you. Do you see? You are no more the body than the uh riverbank is the river. Yes. You are no more the body than the platform is the train. They are two different things. And so what's it to you? If the body dies, <laughs> you see, if you're the river bank, what's it to you that the river, you know, dries up. If you are the platform, what's it to you that the train crashes? Do you see how this insight absolutely liberates you from all concerns regarding the body? Old age, sickness, and death, the three insights the Buddha set out to solve, all get in one fell swoop um, eradicated by the recognition, not just the concept, but the realization that you are not the body very dramatic statement right and you say okay okay yeah fine i'm not the body but i'm the mind am i not i'm this person i am nish and i am doctor so and so and i still fear things i mean i fear disrepute i fear blame i fear criticism i feel grief in the mind i fear losing my loved ones all of that but can't you notice also by that same breath that the mind is ever changing your moods are changing your thoughts are changing the very fact that you are able to sit here and tune into the change in the mind shows you that you are not the mind. You are the one watching the mind. You are no more the mind. than you are the body. The platform is no more the train than the riverbank is the river. Do you see this line of reasoning? It's very powerful. It frees you once and for all from being identified with the mind and the body and by that virtue, you are freed from all the afflictions of the mind and body. That's how Sankhya liberates you from suffering. Now, importantly, this cannot just be an intellectual concept for you. I mean, if you just leave this lecture going, Oh, yeah, I, I got that. I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. Just wait till somebody breaks your heart. You'll forget all your Sankhya. Wait till uh uh some you get cut on your hike. Ow! Stub your toe. Gone is all the Sankhya. (laughs) So remember, Sankhya started as a philosophical school um, with philosophical argumentation, but it developed into the school of philosophy known as yoga. So yoga comes from Sankhya and yoga is different from Sankhya in a few key ways. I won't get into it today because it's not really a Sankhya yoga philosophy class. Um, but yoga is distinct from Sankhya in a few ways. But most importantly, the yogis realized you need a little more than one university lecture with Kapila to be free from the uh, indoctrination of being a body or being a, a mind. Right? So yoga proposes a rigorous system of mystical practices. Yes, precisely. Heraclitus, yes. You can't step in the same river twice because you're apart from the river. <laughs> so uh, Sankhya is a philosophy. Yoga is also a philosophical school, but the yogis, the adherents of yoga, have a little bit more of a mystical bent, so uh eventually yoga develops into several styles, but the most popular, the central practice of yoga um, is what Patanjali proposes. So somewhere around the 5th century BCE, or perhaps 2nd century AD, nobody really knows, but somewhere in that range, a philosopher known as Patanjali, perhaps a mythical being, uh, his name literally implies fallen angel. Anjali is like divine thing. Uh, Patanjali means the one that fell. You know, so Patanjali is supposedly an incarnation of the serpent Adi Sesha, the Vishnu's couch. So the serpent incarnates as uh, Patanjali. And Patanjali teaches a method known as Raja Yoga in which you practice meditating until you can achieve a very specialized form of meditation. Yeah, perhaps, Caleb, perhaps. A lot of serpents, huh? In the DNA molecule of Watson and Crick and in Hermes's Caduceus. I don't know. So Patanjali is supposedly this uh, incarnation of Adi Sesha. Um, he learned yoga from Shiva. So the myth goes he saw Shiva dancing the Tandava, one of Shiva's many dances. And from watching the dance, he was inspired and taught, taught others, taught others Hatha Yoga, uh, Raja Yoga. And later, Hatha Yoga appears many, many centuries later in order to prepare people for Raja Yoga. Now, Raja Yoga is all about nirvikalpa samadhi. Samadhi is a reference to a specialized meditative technique in which you can verify for yourself that you are distinct from the world around you. So think of it this way. Raja Yoga is the method of verification for the truths of Sankhya. So, Sankhya might appear very conceptual, um, especially for a lot of people who are beginners in the spiritual path. Sankhya was first offered to very mature practitioners and meditators. And so for them, all they needed was to hear the concept and realize once and for all the insight to which those concepts pointed. But yoga meets you perhaps where you're at and says, yeah, well, maybe the concepts aren't yet believable to you. But before you dismiss them, practice this method of verification. So you can see there is a kind of scientific bent. Yoga is a science. It's a method for verification. Now, when you practice Hatha, uh, Raja Yoga, you practice meditation, and apparently it is very likely that you will encounter a rarefied state known as nirvikalpa samadhi, which means total immersion without any mental constructs. At that moment, you are distinctly aware of how different you are from your mind, how different you are from your body, and how different you are from the world around you. Not just that, you will realize that from the mind comes like, the the experience of the body and from the experience of the body comes the experience of the world. So what yoga says is this purusha spirit, the subject, the observer is distinct from Prakriti nature, but somehow purusha mistakes itself as Prakriti. The example they give is the, uh, the jewel and the flower. So take a red flower. They love the red flower and the white jewel. If you hold a clear, not white, but a transparent jewel behind or sorry, in front of a flower, the jewel turns red. You know, the jewel was never red. The jewel is transparent, but it assumes the property red by virtue of superimposition. So according to Sankhya, this is what happened. They don't really explain why it happened. They just say that it it happened. It happened that Prakriti and Purusha aligned in such a way that Prakriti uh, imposed its properties onto Purusha, causing Purusha to completely forget itself as the observer. And Sankhya, and by that virtue yoga, frees you from this error. Okay. Now, look at what happens as a consequence of Sankhya and as a consequence of yoga. The literal word that defines the highest attainment of Sankhya is Kaivalya, which means aloneness, or in fact, aloofness, in fact, self-sufficiency. How can a person who recognizes through mystic insight that she is completely alone, completely aloof, completely self-sufficient, how can that person be ever interested in helping the world and being a part of the world? You know, doesn't she realize once and for all that the world is not her? That she is um, just the awareness? Hmm. That would seem like the consequence of the philosophy, yes. So wouldn't you expect... The Sankian philosophers to be cold and kind of like douchebags, totally, uh, you know, ungrounded, sitting in a Himalayan mountain. Some of them are like that. But the vast majority of them that we know about through history were incredible humanists. Think about Patanjali, for instance. Patanjali is the sage, nay, saint, nay, avatara, Incarnation of God par excellence in the yoga system. And that fella, um discovered Kaivalya and then he wrote a bunch of books on grammar so he could help Indian society articulate itself better. Look at the hymn to Prata- uh, Patanjali. Yogena chitasya padena vacham malam sharirasya chavaidya kena Yopa karutam prabaram muninam patanjalim praanjali rana tosmi Abahu purushakaram shankachakra sitaranam Sahasra Shirasam Shvetam Pranamami Patanjalim, which translates to, Hail unto thee, Patanjali, whose books on grammar, medicine, and yoga heal the ailments of civilization. Uh, Loose translation, but you see, Patanjali didn't discover Kaivalya and fuck off to the Himalayas. He stuck around and wrote books on grammar to reformulate Sanskrit. And in that breath, books were written about... (laughs) (laughs) books were written about, uh, medicine, books were written about, uh, uh, all sorts of things. And he himself wrote books on Ayurveda or the science of life. You know, he wrote books about remedies and he was kind of like a witch guy, you know, witch talk hashtag, you know, he would, he would just help people with remedies and stuff. And, and most of all, he taught people taught. It's very hard for me to say the T word in English. You know, cause he always say, ta, ta. He taught, um, the, um, uh, science of yoga so people could once and for all be freed from the illusion of being the body and the mind. You see. So what a humanist. And Kapila also spent his whole life teaching people Sankhya. You didn't just leave. So that's that's something we must consider here. That even the adherence of the most verticalist, escapist school of South Asian philosophy still produces very active, very humanitarian saints, such as Kapila, such as Patanjali. Okay, let's look at another verticalist school. That is another uh, kind of escapist school. Uh, and, and you'll see now more and more why the word escapism just does not hold any water when we consider what these spiritual practices actually are like. Okay, our next stop on the tour is Buddhism. Now remember, the Shakyamuni Buddha, a prince in a north, uh, perhaps northwestern, relatively obscure Indian kingdom, um, was raised in a situation in which every day was an encounter with pleasure. Much like us in the first world, he was in a perpetual Starbucks on a perpetual Sunday afternoon surrounded by beautiful hipster friends with massive Instagram followings. I don't know. That would be the equivalent. But he was just so busy, so inundated with sensory experience, with pleasures of every variety. But somehow, much like many of us today, he was able to intuit that there is more to life. Oh, here comes Heather's live-in Buddha. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) So, um, the Buddha was distinctly aware of a kind of superficiality in life. And interestingly enough, in order to, you know, investigate life a little more, he went for a walk or a tour and uh, he stepped outside the sheltered confines of his upbringing, his princely upbringing, only to be confronted with some horrific truths about life, truths that we don't like to think about, such that we're all going to get old, as invulnerable as we feel, as uh, immortal as we feel, we are going to get old. Hatha yogis included. (laughs) Um, We are going to get sick. We don't need COVID to tell us that. There is still malaria. There is typhoid. Our world has always been afflicted by plague. People act as if COVID is like, oh, it's new. no, people have been sick. People have had plagues all throughout history. This is nothing new. Um, it's just a fact. It's a fact of life. And the Buddha realized that. And then finally, death. You will die, and and not just that. Everyone you love will die. And yet we delude ourselves, thinking that that won't happen. That that we won't die. That the people we love won't leave us. You know that accidents don't happen. Diseases don't happen. Muscle dystrophy? Yeah, that just happened to Stephen Hawking. Age 20 something. Not to us. I'm never gonna get Lou Gehrig's. How do you know? It seems like we live, as the Buddha pointed out, in a constantly, uh, self-maintaining bubble or echo chamber of delusion. Pretending like the body is not afflicted, that the mind is not afflicted. The Buddha was so moved by that, that he decided to go and find a solution. Not merely for himself, but his passion, he's, he's a Gyani, a philosopher, a, a true seeker, um, and his passion was to figure it out for everybody. You know, so six long years, he's practicing his craft, um, articulates beautiful insights, and eventually, at the end of that journey, uh, he crystallizes Three profound insights. The three insights are as follows everything is changing. Anityam, anityam, sarva, manityam. Everything is changing. Um, and it's actually very deep because he realized um, that everything is causally interdependent. And that's why everything changes. Everything is connected. So here you're, you're, you're getting a very optimistic philosophy for your responsibility in the world. Everything, according to the Buddha, is connected. This is not to be taken on mere speculation. This is to be experientially realized through the practice of meditation. Most notably, as we learn in the Anapanasati, vipassana meditation. Vipassana or vipassana means insight meditation. When you meditate, meaning when you achieve the end of meditation, which is it's known as shamatha which means tranquil, peaceful, and joyful mind. When you have such a mind, that mind will be transparent to the truths of life. And the first truth you will encounter is the causal interdependence of all things. That gives rise to change. And it's because of change that we experience a very eerie property known as dukkam or suffering. We suffer because we live in a world of change, yet ignore the truth of that. We pretend like this world isn't changing. It's just always going to be the way it is. Our loved ones are always going to be nice with us. Uh, the things that we like will always be there. And we're always going to be, you know, uh, and that causes dukkha. And once you realize this, you know the way out of dukkha And the next thing that the Buddha realizes is that, the way out of dukkha, the way out of suffering, and that's formulated as... uh. Either two, two ways of seeing it. Shunyam or Anathman. So Shunya, Shunyam, Shunyam, Sarvam, Shunyam is the Buddha's insight that actually everything is void. Okay, this is a bit of a gap, and this isn't a Buddhism class, nor is it a Sankhya yoga class, so we're not really going to investigate today why the Buddha was able to say that because things change, they are therefore devoid of any intrinsic reality. That is a good philosophical inquiry, and maybe we'll have that discussion at the end of the lecture. But for now... I know I, I tell you not to take anything on faith, but just uh, for expediency, uh, just note, just note, <laughs> don't believe, just note that the Buddha uh, dismissed the reality of the world. He, uh, in his first lecture, you know, in the Dharma Chakra Pravartana lecture, in the Deer Park to his five buddies, in that lecture, he dismissed the world. And 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 therein lies the abject escapism of buddhism the absolute seeing through the world of samsara as nothing but an illusion and as a result many aspirants on the buddhist uh, path uh, did drop out of society you know they shaved their heads they took new names. They surrendered property and family ties. They took vows of poverty and chastity. And often they moved to live in a spiritual community where everyone around them was engaged full time in the task of acquiring first and foremost shamatha, that is tranquil mind, as a means to vipassana, insight, as a means to nirvana, absolute blowing out. You know, so here we have another, it seems, Transcendentalist philosophy, blow out samsara. The Buddha would say, uh, if uh, attachment to the self, if you believe that you are the body and the mind, if you think there is a soul inside you, you will suffer. You will get dukkha or samsara, he would say, the wheel of birth and death. Very elaborate argument as to why you will continue to reincarnate as long as you take yourself to be this body and mind. It's like sankhya, do you notice? Buddha, Buddha and Kapila were very close in history. Uh it's hard to say which one preceded which. Um but both of them were interested in solving the riddle of body and mind and the trap of body and mind. It's likely the Buddhist came after the Sankyans because the Buddhist clean up some of the problems with Sankhya most notably the demonization of the body, you know? So the Buddha's beginning journey was very sankyan, very like, body, ew, punish it, punish it, hate it, uh, it's keeping me from truth. And the Buddha was like, no, 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 indulgence and uh, extreme asceticism are both two ways to be obsessed with the body. They're just two sides of the same coin. So he was like, okay, none of that, none of this, um, neti, neti, <laughs> no, uh, middle way, middle way. And then through that, The Buddha came to the same realization. Though, like, let's not forget um, the same realization that you are not the body, nor are you the mind. Isn't that interesting? So the only way to have that realization is not by demonizing the body and the mind. But eventually you will realize, much like the Sankhyans, that you are not the body, nor are you the mind. The Buddha actually goes even further. The Sankhiyans say, yes, Prakriti, nature, is distinct from Purusha, me. But Prakriti still exists. I can see it. It's observable. It exists. Buddhist, no, no, no. They're they're more hardcore. Hey, my fellow Taurus. What's up, Claire? I always feel happy when there are more earth signs in the room. I seem to be surrounded by fire signs, Claire. What do I do? Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, it seems like the Buddha goes a little further, a little more hardcore. He's like, Prakriti, not even a thing. Void. It's empty. It, it lacks intrinsic reality. Um, there is no soul in you. There is no soul apart from you. There is no God up there. The world is a sufficient explanation onto the world. And it's all a dream. A nightmare even. So, samsara. Uh, but, nirvana. Ending of samsara. What is nirvana? I dare not tell you. Because then you'll make a concept. So, yes. <laughs> So, the Buddhist seem like uh, uh, an escapist, transcendentalist school. Yet, look at the actual life of the Buddha. Upon having that insight, again, he didn't... Like, you would think he realizes, you know, uh, he was asked by someone upon leaving his bodhgaya, walking out of the bodhi uh, tree, the grove, he was asked by a child, uh, Tattvam... Uh, 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 Tatvam devasmi, you know, I, I, are you a god? Are you are you a deity? And the Buddha's like, nay, 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 nay. Aham budhasmi. I, I'm awake. That's all I am. Not a noun, a verb. I'm awake. I'm awake to the fact that I am nothing. <laughs> I'm awake to the fact that I never was the mind, never was the body. Uh, I'm not. Full stop. You know, um, and that freed him. And at that point, once he realizes the complete superficiality of body and the mind, it wasn't that he left. It wasn't that he sat in an activity. He actually spent the rest of his life wandering up and down India, uh, teaching everybody, preaching to the common people. And in fact, on the last day of the Buddha's life, he had just ate a, eaten some poison food, you know. Uh, some people speculate it's because he realized his disciples were turning him into a cult figure, and he knew that they would never grow in his shadow. He knew that in order for them to become Buddhas, they would have to do what he did, which is forsake all teachers and learn from the only only teacher you should listen to yourself, your own heart, your own light, you know, so he realized that, he realized he was becoming a little bit of a crutch, and so some people thought he outified thou just to help his disciples, you know, develop. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, guys. And then um, another story is he was given the food by a devotee, by someone who was really um, in love with him, and he didn't want to offend the kind and sincere gift. Even though he knew that the food was poisoned, he was more interested in being polite and sweet than he was really in self-preservation. After all, what is there to preserve? What's death to him? What's pain to him? He's not in the body. He's not in the mind. He's not attached to anything. (laughs) Claire, what a relatable guy. (laughs) Yeah, so he eats this poisoned food and on his last day, he's literally on his deathbed dying Um, emaciated and uh, his friend Ananda comes in and says "Um, Buddha uh, Shakyamuni Gautam Gautam there's a a guy who came for your private he was giving these free lectures and and the guy came to see the Buddha and, and Ananda said don't worry bro I sent him away I know you're sick you probably don't want to see anybody right now and the Buddha's like what are you doing Ananda call him back I will have the class and this is him on his deathbed you know sick in pain and the, the man comes back and the Buddha gives a lecture. His final lecture was not to a group of adoring fans. It wasn't in Wembley Stadium to 80,000 people. You know, it wasn't at the Greek, you know. It it was just in a shack in, in a probably dirty house with one obscure person who he only just met, you know. Yeah, it's funny, Anthony. Exactly. St. Anthony of, of Padua ate poison food, um... Yeah, exactly. So it seems like a lot of these people choose; they can alchemize the food, surely. But they're just like, yeah, I, I think I think I've, I've done my work. And you know. uh, same is true, perhaps for Socrates. He chose. Um, anyway, it seems like the 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 Shakyamuni Buddha spent his last living breath teaching. You know. Okay, I want to point out two things here following the story of the Buddha. Now, it isn't just the Buddha. The Buddha obviously lived a life of intense compassion. He would even say, send your compassion out to the north. Send it to the south. Send it to the east. Send it to the west. Of course, this will turn into a big imperialist project by the, like, Chola dynasty. And, you know, that would turn into ships sailing and bringing the dharma everywhere through an imperialist conquest with King Ashoka. But I don't think the Buddha meant it that way. He just meant, send your love out. And this is what today we experience as metta meditation, loving kindness meditation. So even in vipassana, notice... Theravadin Buddhists don't believe in Bodhisattvas. For them, it, it's an Arhat. That's the highest you can be and when you become an Arhat, you, you literally do fuck off. Like you're just done with the world. You become an Arhat and you're done, right? So, um, it seems like the Theravada. Yeah, Westerfer is like, I'm outie, outie five thou. It seems like the Theravadin school, even though they don't believe in Bodhisattvas or returning compassionate Buddhas, still practiced metha meditation, which is at the end of your meditation, you take whatever good feelings that you have in your heart and you just send it out into the world, uh, maybe to a person. You visualize in front of you someone you love and you create in you feelings of love for that person. Then perhaps you visualize yourself much harder to love yourself than your loved ones. And you take the feelings of love you felt for your loved ones and convert it to love for yourself. And then the clincher, the most important, you evoke in front of you your enemy someone you don't get on well with, someone you despise, someone with a different political ideology from you, and you send them that same love that you sent yourself, that you sent your beloved. How radical. A philosophy of complete loving kindness acceptance. Um, and that the Theravadin Buddhist maintained was the singular best way to improve the condition of the world. So Um, there is a lot of compassion even in the Hinayana or orthodox schools of Buddhism to say nothing of the tremendous compassion of the Mahayana or Vajrayana Buddhist schools with their talks of bodhisattvas, which literally means uh, purified awakened ones who return, you know, to help others. So the point I want to make here is, with regards to the Buddha story, when you consider your activism in the world, That is, when you consider what good you can do for others, let's use a little Buddhist insight um, to understand this effort. There are three ways, broadly speaking, that you can help someone. And Vivekananda made the same point in his Karma Yoga text. There are three ways you can help someone. The first and the most obvious and the lowest hanging fruit is to help them materially. Give a man a fish. Or in Jesus' case, you know lots of fish, (laughs) but, but materially is one of the, uh, uh, maybe cheapest. I don't say cheapest, but most obvious way to help someone. Someone's hungry, feed them. And this is what, unfortunately, of, (laughs) no, Anthony, don't do that to the man. Spare him. He's suffering already. Don't (laughs) the last thing he needs is someone to talk his ear off. (laughs) Mm. Okay. So most of us, the only way we think we should help others is just feed them, just clothe them, you know. Um, And okay, that's good, but it's a limited amount of good. Now look look at why. So the Buddha and, and in the school of Buddhism, they point out three levels of suffering. There are three levels of suffering, you know. There is first and foremost the suffering of suffering. That is being hungry, being cold, uh, being actually politically, like tortured, and, and being a refugee, or like ways that are so obviously suffering, right? He called this the suffering of suffering. And he would say, to the, to the ailments that is suffering of suffering, there are mundane cures. When you're hungry, eat. When you're bored, watch TV. I don't know. Uh, but here's what you notice it never permanently solves the problem you will be hungry again you will be thirsty again you will be cold again you will be in a situation of political oppression again that's it's only a matter of time your material help is transient and it has to be because it doesn't permanently solve the problem now let's extrapolate this let's say you really could give a person the most amount of material help okay it's it's now uh, 18 43, driven by an intense desire to help the world, you get on a ship and you go on a colonial expedition to bring hygiene to the people of the uh, the Americas or the people in the wild Indies. And, and you you know, you're not going there to steal their gold necessarily. I mean, that might be also happening. You know, the East India Company is certainly going out for some resources, sure. But that's not why you're doing it. And you're not really going out... Um, for glory. I mean, Vasco da Gama and Bartholomew Diaz, these manly men, you know, sailed to India and to Africa for glory. Sure. That's going, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because you care. Because you love the world. And so you're going out to build some railways for the poor, starving, hungry brown people in the other part of the world who are suffering so much. I mean, look at these people. They worship trees for crying out loud. Surely they're backward. You know, they don't have big cities. Um, Let's give that to them. Let's teach them science, that they might surrender their magic and awe and connection to nature in favor of a much more grounded, helpful uh, approach that gives them electricity. Okay, let's do that. Road to hell paved in good intentions, right? Okay, but let's assume that the horrific excesses that occurred in the name of missionary work didn't happen. Let's assume that it's the best case scenario. There is no Vasco da Gama looking for glory. There is no East India company trying to steal uh, resources. It's just an actual philanthropic venture. Let's give it that. So let's say we succeeded in creating the world, in the world, one big Starbucks. Everywhere is a Starbucks. You know, so everywhere you go, it's as first world as it can be. There's the lights come on electricity is working, you know, there's like metros and all that. Let's assume. And we even have a sample set for this kind of society. You know, take any, yeah, fraps, fraps for all. I don't even know how to say that word. Uh, but uh, let's say that there is like all of this stuff. And look at a city like Singapore, for instance, you know, with incredible uh, hygiene. You know, you get a, a serious penalty for chewing gum in Singapore because they don't want the gum to be under the, uh, the, the seat, Frappé, frappé, thank you, Caleb. You've taught me something today. Um, think about countries in Scandinavia. Think about this country, America. Think about all the wealth and luxury and material abundance that is here. You're able to flip a switch and lights come on. What's up with that? In most parts of the world, that doesn't happen. How cool. You turn on a tap and clean water comes out for as long as you want. I mean, this would be for many cultures all over the world... Uh, throughout history, insane luxury. Like the Buddha, we live in a situation of extraordinary wealth. Yet, why are we all so sad? Why are there such depression rates? Why is it, if you go to Starbucks, there is a 30-something-year-old woman, man, person, throwing a tantrum because the honey content isn't quite right in the tea? Uh, people make jokes about this: first-world problems, right? No, but it's real. The very alleviation of material wants does not create for happiness. In fact, it actually intensifies, in many cases, suffering. It creates a preciousness, an inability to handle things not going my way, an inflexibility that is absolutely um, disturbed or disconcerted by the slightest of changes. Think, for instance, the advent of the pandemic a year ago how unhorsed people were when they realized for the first time that they did not have control over nature as much as their civilizations would like them to believe. So we make this joke. Ah, well done. You managed to turn the light on and keep the city perpetually bright. What does that do but mask your fear of the dark? My mother, after all, eats your cities for breakfast with her hurricane teeth and cyclone tongue. (laughs) So Here we are in the first world, resting upon the laurels of material access, of luxury. But surely this cannot be the ultimate way to help people. Like giving people food, giving people clothes is good, but transient. Now, it might just be a veiled way of patting ourselves on the back. You know, okay, we gave the uh, naked brown people uh, a wall. We built a wall. We painted it even. We got a couple of Instagram photos, you know, Um now, here's my my challenge humbly. Follow up with those communities who have received aid packages. Look to the sustainability of various aid uh, expeditions throughout our history. Notice that while we were able to help people for a season right after a flood, they often return to situations that are many times much worse than the ones that they were in before the uh saviors arrived. <laughs> Mm. Look, the only point we're trying to make here is material help is but one way to help others. The second way, and perhaps a better way, that many people around the world are recognizing is um, more sustainable ways. Ways that teach people to fish as opposed to just giving them fish. Ways to build societies that are self-sustaining, sure. Um, But again, history will show us how many times that falls short. And hopefully in a moment, we'll provide an argument as to why that happens. So the second way to help them is to educate. Like teaching is one of the best things you can do. Giving people knowledge, like knowledge about science, knowledge about social empowerment, and then let them do what they will with that knowledge. So one way to help people is materially, but a better way, a higher way is to help them intellectually. You know, because it's not just about staying alive. As Vivekananda makes the point beautifully in the text Karma Yoga, he says it's about living. It's not just about staying alive, and it's about living. And the life of man, which, you know, in that time is life of man, but it means the life of people. The life of people is a life of the mind. It's a life of intellect. It's a life of knowledge. We are homo sapiens, after all, uh, the, the wise ones. We thrive on learning, you know. So beyond just giving them food, help them learn, give them knowledge. But not all knowledge is helpful knowledge. And the Bible alludes to this with the Towers of Babylon. The Book of Enoch alludes to this with Azazel the teacher. How could it be a crime that Azazel is teaching people how to make bronze? Well, probably because they'll make swords and kill each other. Why is it a crime that Azazel is teaching makeup? I don't know, probably because people will find themselves lost in a superficial, vain, uh, glorious attempt for perpetual beauty in a body that's decaying. Why would Azazel um, be chastised for teaching people the art of politics? Well, maybe because they'll go to war with one another, uh, disguising their conquest with clever arguments that appeal to the masses. So it seems like uh, in the book of Enoch, we do have a criticism that not all knowledge is good you know, that some knowledge can actually further exacerbate problems, can confuse us. So now offering the third way of helping others. While giving them food is good, while teaching them how to create systems of electrical grids are good, better than all of that is spiritual knowledge. Teaching others how to relate to life, not by changing the contents of their life, but by changing the relationship between them and those contents, that's the only real way you can help someone. And as Sankhya and Buddha- Buddhism discovered, the best help you can render someone is to enlighten them. to show them that they are not the body nor are they the mind. They are the awareness in which the body and mind, okay now, I'm slipping into my Advaita, sorry, I take that sentence back. Uh, that they should not be worried about death in the body, sickness in the body, grief in the mind. And then they are beyond all harm. Do you see? That's the best thing you can do for someone. But, How can you fill up another's cup when your own is empty? What water will you pour into the waiting palms of the masses if you have no juice? (laughs) And now the wisdom of the Buddhist approach is enlightenment first, then compassion and help. You don't start with metta meditation. No, you start with your Anapanasati Vipassana meditation. And when you feel into a state of high vibration, it's from there that you act. Hmm? So what happens if you act before enlightenment? Now, it seems like a tall order. It's like, oh, are you saying that I can't be politically active until I'm enlightened? That seems like a far off goal, Um given that some cultures see it as more than just a lifetime's work. It's many lives worth of work. And are you saying that I have to wait until then? Yes. (laughs) Um, And and here's why. Here's why. Short of that point, short of the complete stabilization, in truth, you are always susceptible to three errors. And these three errors naturally occur as a result of over-identification with thoughts. You see, what spiritual life really is, um, humbly, just a suggestion, don't take my word for it, uh, you know, feel into the truth for yourself, but what spiritual life is, is not necessarily ending the mind, it's just realizing that there's more to it than that. It's just adding on new coordinates for awareness, realizing that it's not just the way we see it in our mind, there's a reality beyond that, beyond our concepts. Uh, And in fact, realizing that our concepts uh, are actually devoid of a lot of, uh, let's say, corroboration with reality, you know? So when you progress in spiritual life, you become less and less attached to your concepts. But until that point, until the point in which you let go of concepts, you will be over-identified with them. You will hold on to them too tightly. And here are the three errors that will result from that. The first is not being able to appreciate uh, moral relativity. It is a great failing in human nature that we believe our code of ethics is the universal code of ethics that applies for everyone, everywhere. Swami Vivekananda makes this beautiful point. He says he traveled a lot. You know, he was preaching and going up and down India. uh, And when he was in Tibet, he noticed something very strange. Remember, he's Indian, right? So he comes from a society um, in which chastity is the highest ideal. Monogamy, chastity, fidelity, loyalty is seen as the absolute bedrock of indian civilization such to to the extent that you don't choose your wife or husband you know you get assigned one and on on behalf of all humanity you should be able to feel unconditional love for everyone you know if you marry someone by choice uh it's fish love you know that fish love the rabbi Uh, One rabbi, he looked at someone else and was like, uh, um, why do you eat fish, brother? And, And the friend said, oh, I like fish. But if you like fish, why did you kill it, take it out of the water and eat it? No, you don't like fish. You like eating fish. You see, Indian society realized very early on the problem with marrying out of preference is you start to see other people as means to your own ends. If they don't provide you the pleasure, the ego, gratification, or whatever it is that you're using them for, you throw them aside. So ultimately, you don't love them unconditionally. You love them on some condition. It was premised on that condition that you entered into relationship with them. So Indian society was like, look, 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 Um, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to relate to one another in a family dynamic. And the best way is surrender your choice. Rawls, you know, the the Harvard professor Rawls, beautiful fellow. He only recently, you know, beautiful fellow. Rawls made the same point. Rawls said the only true ethics can be formulated by someone who doesn't know which strata of society they belong to. So someone has to, like, before they incarnate into a soul, uh, they're in this birth lottery. It's only then you should ask them about ethics because the moment they incarnate and become a rich person, they'll have a very different idea of, like, politics than, like, a poor person. So you have to put the blinders on a little bit for any true discussion of ethics, any unconditional, actually true. So similarly, Indian society was like, look, 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 let's solve this problem. Let's put two humans together. We're very idealistic as a people. We're like, they will love each other. You know, they'll love each other. They'll love each other unconditionally. And most importantly, that fidelity, that, uh, the political bardos, <laughs> westopher <laughs> Rawls meets the, uh, the Vajrayana, the Joggen Buddhist, we get political bardos. <laughs> you'll see Biden, you know, uh, Mihraj, you'll see Biden. And <laughs> what a funny comic, westopher I hope you'll make it. <laughs> so, um, you put two people together and, It's the fidelity to your wife, husband, partner that prepares you for devotion in spiritual life, commitment to your spiritual ideals. Chastity in marriage is the foundation for chastity in uh, spiritual life, committing to an ideal and not wavering from it, even when things get difficult. This is exactly Kant's categorical imperative. The idea, no, sorry, it's not the categorical imperative. It's, it's the uh, fundamentals of, of pure reason. The idea that you're only moral when you're doing your duty despite not wanting to. Otherwise, you're acting according to duty and not on duty. So Kant formulates this very clearly. Don't think you're a good person just because what you like to do happens to be good. You know, wow, it helps your diet to not eat meat. You must be such an ethical vegan. No, it just so happens that your interest seems to align with ethics and therefore, uh, you call yourself, and Kant was like, watch out for that. It's not wrong to let good things be a consequence of action, but don't conflate that with morality. Morality is when you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway. (laughs) So similarly, uh, the Christ, peace and blessings upon him, would say the same. Even to so whosoever looketh upon a woman commits adultery, right? The idea that it's about your inner attitude, not actually what you do, but your inner attitude. Okay, so um, that's Indian society. And for those of you who are like inter- interested in polyamory, look at, look at what's going to come up. In Indian society, this is our ideal, chastity and fidelity. Swami Vivekananda, peace be upon him, went to Tibet. And at that time in the fifties in Tibet, it would be a travesty, it would be an absolute moral violation for a brother not to share with his brothers his wife. I mean, it would be so selfish for a person to consider that relationship as exclusive. And Vivekananda was so like disgusted by this. You know, it don't run polyamory by us like uh, sannyasins, you know, or like, <laughs> not, I'm not sannyasin, but you know, by, by sannyasins. They're very like, uh, um, So he was astounded to discover this. But as he goes through his travels, he realized what's right and appropriate for one culture is not so for another. It's not because one culture is fundamentally moral and the other fundamentally immoral. It's just that different cultures develop along different lines that develop along different emotional needs. So if we consider immorality as acts that harm others, we must consider that it's chastity that's harmful to those early Tibetans versus... Uh, non-monogamy, whereas non-monogamy and polyamory would be incredibly harmful to the Indian, whereas chastity is helpful. Um, Both of them are premising their ethics on the same thing, which is what creates the most level of harmony. It's just that they have different emotional dispositions, which changes their ideal of harmony. So if you are uh, not yet practicing spirituality, and you intend to help the world, you are incredibly susceptible to not recognizing, or at least not being sensitive to the idea, the possibility that your morality might not be the world's morality. That other people feel differently than you, think differently from you. That other people might be harmed by the very actions that your friends would be helped by. Do you see? Mm. So moral relativity is the first thing to recognize. The second thing to recognize is you do not know ever what the consequence of your action will be. So even if in the beginning, the action looks like the right one, it could be the worst thing that anybody could possibly do because it sets up unintended consequences that are far worse. They call this the doctrine of double effect in Western philosophy. Um, and it's the idea of, are you responsible for that? You try to do something good and then horrible things happened. Is that on you? And some would, some people would say, yes, it's negligence, it's causality. But can you be negligent when you really just did not know? You know, when you couldn't have anticipated? To this we say, as long as you live a life of the mind, you will only ever have access to some of the data a part of the picture because that's the nature of what it is to be a mind. You only see things dualistically. You see things in parts. You can never feel with the mind itself the wholeness of things because ultimately the mind is nothing but a part. You are more than a mind. You know, there are other parts in you, if you will. Um, sorry, Buddhist. I know, Panchaskanda. I know, I know. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so so feel into that. Yes, exactly, Anthony. The, I'm so happy you're here, you know, because we have Anthony of Padua, and then here's, you know, uh, St. Anthony is describing about the Jesuit um, uh, philosophies. But yeah, so the idea is, are you responsible for that? And here's the thing. When you act from the mind, since you can only act from part of the picture, what you think is the right thing to do might not be the right thing to do. So at best, your actions are speculation, you know? That's the second problem. The third problem, and this is the most pernicious, um, as long as you are identified with the mind, you will be overly attached to the outcomes of your actions. That is to say, you will actually believe that you can single-handedly change the world. You can end poverty. You can end HIV. You can fix environmental disaster. And in fact, you are sold this at school, right? You're told this often like, yes, you can. And even if you can't clean the whole thing up, it's about this one starfish, you know? Um, You're told these things. And if you buy into them too much, here are the two problems. One, uh, this we call in philosophy nirvana fallacy, I think very aptly named. The idea that you can end suffering in the world. As the Buddha points out, no, you can create Starbuckses everywhere, but you'll never actually be able to end suffering en masse. Patañjali points it out in the Patañjala Yoga Shastra. He points out that even though you might be liberated, and even though you might teach others to be liberated, yet for others, the world continues... um. In regular programming, samsara turns for those who are not liberated. Now, there's a story, I told it last week, but it's worth returning to. It's quite funny. Um, it's the story of the dog's curly tail. And it's a story to remind us um, to be humble with regards to our effect in the world. Um, and it's an important story. So, one day, uh, a certain man in India was obsessed. Okay, you know, a lot of you might ask, like, okay, if 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 uh, I cannot do anything, if I can't end poverty, is it still worth trying? Yes. The problem is thinking it's only worth doing if you can end it. Do you see? Uh, you're so attached to the conclusion that you won't act unless you can guarantee that conclusion will happen. And if it won't happen, we'll see in a moment what's going to happen to you. How uh, the road to hell is paved in good intentions, as we will see. But first, the story. So there was a certain man in India, um, yeah, Exactly, Ryan. There's a certain man in India uh, who heard a story about uh, ghosts. He heard from someone that if a person learnt a certain mantra, if he acquired a mantra, he would be able to bring into his service uh, a ghost, an astral being. Uh, And then that astral being will satisfy all of his needs. So this man, lazy guy, didn't want to work, became so obsessed with the idea of having his own personal ghost you know, so he uh, wanders far and wide. He really needs to see people. Like, ah, teach me, teach me, teach me. Finally, he finds a yogi, a very powerful sage, and he follows the yogi everywhere. Teach me, teach me, teach me. And the yogi's like, "Look, please take my word for it. You don't want to do this. Don't disturb yourself with these supernatural powers. Just practice spirituality." Just meditate. You don't need all the things that you think you need. You will be, through your meditation, connected to a wholeness that will free you from this craving. Let me teach you that. Let me teach you mantras that spiritualize you. And the man is obstinate. No! I don't want your asana. I don't want your pranayama. I want the goddamn ghost. And finally, the yogi, uh, just to get rid of him, says, fine. Here's the mantra. This is how you bring a ghost under your service. Um, Go into the forest at whatever time, witching hour, chant the mantra a couple of times, and the ghost will appear. But wait. If the ghost appears and it's idle, meaning if you don't give it a job to do, um, like the Me6 from Rick and Morty, if you don't give it a job to do, it will freak out and eat you. You know? So the guy's like, come on, this ghost is going to be the busiest ghost in the world. My desires are inexhaustible. It's not going to be idle. Ah, don't worry. And then he goes, um, yeah, it's funny. Kowdang actually makes for a really good, uh, uh, cooling property when you build your houses out of it. I would investigate your relationship to Kaodang actually. Why is it so, uh, uh offensive to you? <laughs> <laughs> a little hypochondria there maybe <laughs> <laughs> sorry the peanut killed you sorry that was insensitive that's <laughs> my response anyway um so the uh, <laughs> so the man goes into the forest and he summons this ghost um And the ghost appears, and he says, Ah, I am the ghost, and I will do what you ask, but if I am idle, I will devour you. And the man says, Let's get to work, brah. First and foremost, build me a castle made entirely of jewels. And to the man's surprise, the ghost snaps his fingers, and a jewel jeweled palace materializes out of thin air. And the man is a little disconcerted. He's like, Oh, cool. And he says, Now... I would. I want a harem of the most beautiful heavenly nymphs. A- a- and the ghost snaps his fingers, and courtesans appear. And the man thinks, "Oh, okay." Now I want to be the emperor of the universe. And the ghost snaps his fingers, and the next thing you know, the man is crowned emperor of all three realms: svarga, buvar, loka, buloka. And the man realizes his desires weren't inexhaustible. <laughs> <laughs> he's out of things to do. He, he What, what more does he want? So he says to the ghost, okay, chop down this forest. And the ghost chops down the forest. And he says, uh, uh, get me a burrito from third street at 4am made by this one barista and the ghost does it. He gives him these very niche things and the ghost just does it and does it and does it. And now the man realizes the predicament he's in. So he runs back to the yogi having run out of things. How could you eat the emperor of the the universe though? How rude. I know. (laughs) No respect. What will the universe do after he's eaten? (laughs) So he runs back, he runs home. Um, and, uh, The ghost is chasing, he runs to the yogi's home, that is, and he says to the sage, what do I do? I mean, he's coming to eat me, please. Mercy, mercy, mercy. You were right. You were right. I'm so sorry. Do something about this. I will forever be your disciple. I'll learn spirituality. I get it. And the sage, out of his compassion, says, fine, here's what you do. You see that dog's tail? And the man says, yeah, yeah, I see it. Tell the ghost to straighten the tail. The man says, fine. The ghost appears and says, "Ah, I'm ready to eat you. And the man says, I have one more task for you. You see that tail? And the ghost goes, yeah, Uh, straighten it. So the ghost goes to the dog's tail, you know, the curly tail. He straightens it and when he releases it, it curls again. He straightens it a second time and he releases it and it curls again. And he keeps doing this, and it keeps curling. Eventually the dog dies, but the ghost is still going at it, and the tail keeps curling, the ghost driven mad. With the inaneness of this task, existence is pain to a runs back uh, to the man and says, Listen, I'll let you keep the palace, the courtesans, the power, keep everything. Just free me. Look, I'm a veteran ghost. I've been doing this for a long time. I've never encountered so hopeless, so circular, so inane a task as what you've put me to. Um, release me this instance. And he gets released. The point of that, rather, uh, yeah, the dog was Lord Shiva himself. <laughs> Yeah, Vanessa's dog's like, hmm, I featured in this story? <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story. <laughs> so yeah, this long-winded, rather phantasmagorical story is just a way of saying, the world is like that. The world is the dog's tail. You think these environmental problems are new? Back in the day, it was the plague, you know? Um, you think the political uh, landscape is any different from how it used to be circa 1400 BCE, when Babylon was jostling with Assyria, was jostling with um, various other Mesopotamian powers. It's a story as old as time. You know, it seems like uh, the world is in constant need of service. Things always seem to be in flux. And that's a good thing. Because there will always be something for you to do. But if you premise action on the fallacy that that action will in your lifetime or in some series of lifetimes permanently create utopia on earth, you've got another thing coming. And that thing is every communist utopia you've seen turn into a despotic hellscape. The moment you could delude yourself thinking that you can achieve a utopia is when you get a little crazy. I mean, and necessarily, as you, like the ghost, the, the inaneness of the task, it's like whack-a-mole. You solve one problem here, another problem appears. But I built the brown people a railway. Now they're revolting because their grandfather died building it? You know? Ah! the rev- You know, like, and, and then you stop the revolt, and then in so doing, this happened. So it seems like your work in the world is whack-a-mole. You know, you save one ocean. But it's like pouring fresh water into a salt ocean trying to make it fresh. You know, it's like something new will happen. You know, BP spilt oil now. Give it 10 years, someone else will do. But, but see, while this is going on, if you continue to act hoping to see something will change, it isn't long before you turn into an eco-terrorist. It isn't long before you start spiking nails in trees because you're trying to get at the Wall Street business. Man, but the only faces that get shredded are the poor laborers that have to cut the trees for said businessman. Um, and then it gets, it gets very dangerous. There bombs start to be made, you know, in the name of liberation. Um, it becomes, it becomes rather fanatical. Now the danger is good intentions when frustrated by a lack of outcomes can turn into fanaticism. You know, it's when Hitler lost in London in 1940s. It's when Hitler faced the immense impossibility of storming Russia in Operation Valkyrie that you saw the first uh, concentration camps, you know. Up till then, Hitler was an exemplar for a great national leader. You know, if he had died in 1939, today we'd be quoting him. (laughs) Like Napoleon or whatever, he would be a source of inspiration for many. Nobody really read Mein Kampf. You know, nobody elected him in the Reichstag because he was a racist. They elected him because he was a strongman leader who could give Germany back its pride. After France stormed Alsace-Lorraine, after the Treaty of Versailles had bullied them horrifically, um, it was Hitler that gave them back their pride, you know. But... Notice how, as failure stacked upon failure, this brittle ego was not able to handle it and devol- uh, degenerated into the worst human excesses that we can even fathom, you know? Um, you can see eco-terrorists all along the front. You see martyrs and missionaries willing to die and kill for causes that are good causes, you know? Just how many have to die in the name of good causes? So... To sum up here, um, the lesson from Buddhism seems to, lesson so far seems to be this. As long as you are not yet free of the overemphasis on thought, as long as you are still to some degree overly identified with the mind, you are susceptible to three errors. One, the inability to recognize moral relativity. Second, the inability to act from any place except partial information, which might always confuse things, might always, might sometimes confuse things more. And three, you're at risk of fanaticism um, and frustration that has very weird and harmful excesses for you and others when those efforts are frustrated. You know? So this we might call egoic service. You know, service that's about me. So another way to frame our insight so far is as long as you're still attached to a me, as long as you think you're the helper, you will always be susceptible to the savior complex and all the frustrations that come with it. Here we say, investigate your own need to save the world. Is it not a need to save yourself? Are you not identifying with the you that was bullied in the schoolyard that you have now projected onto a group of people somewhere? Are you using that group to address your own psychological needs? And if so, what will you do when these needs are frustrated? You know, so that's the ultimate challenge to anyone who embarks on service prior to spiritual maturity. Mm. So then what's the solution? Uh, Spiritualize first. You know, practice and you don't have to be enlightened. There's always a degree. Um, but the suggestion is don't worry about involving yourself. It will be a natural and spontaneous expression of your spiritual practice. So let's continue a little further, moving from Sankhya onto Buddhism. Now moving from Buddhism onto Advaita Vedanta and then from there on to Kashmiri Shaivism. And then we'll wrap it up. So thus far, we know the trap of acting from a place of being in the ego, acting egoically. We know the trap of needing to be the kind of person who helps the world, of making a big deal on Instagram about your activism. I think they even call it tokenism now. Or there's a word for it, you know. Um, and, and actually calling out tokenist activism is also tokenism. <laughs> there's also a kind of smugness about identifying tokenism. So um, look out for that, you know. So as long as you find yourself the doer, as long as you still think it's you that does things, uh, you will be frustrated, and your service will not be service. Now, I'll tell you a story about Vivekananda or oh, peace and blessings be upon him. It was a beautiful instance uh, in which a Kali temple was about to be destroyed. Uh, some kind of maybe development project, you know, or some construction was threatening a famous Kali temple. Vivekananda. Because he himself was a great Kali Bhakta, a devotee of Kali, by virtue of his master being perhaps an incarnation of Kali herself, um, wanted to protect that temple. So he fought tooth and nail trying to prevent that temple from being destroyed. Ultimately, it was destroyed. You know, ultimately it was destroyed. And he was so upset about it. And that night, he had a vision of Kali. And very characteristic of Kaliama. She appeared and laughed and laughed at him. Laughing hysterically. Parameshwari. Narayani. Laughing at him. Um, and this dark Devi said to him, You fool. You think I can't defend myself? Mahakali. You know, the great primordial womb of all things. You think I am so weak that I need you to protect my temples? No. It is my will that that temple was destroyed. You know? And Vivekananda finally understood. He is not the doer. And Ramakrishna would often say, this body, what is it but an automaton? What is it but a machine? The operator is the divine, Kali. Kali herself. What can your action do That is not permitted by some greater force. It's hubris to think that you can do anything. And I'll give you three arguments to prove that point. Now, this, of course, is dualistic philosophy. So before we do Advaita Vedanta, I'd like to spend a little time with some dualistic ways of approaching religion. Be not the doer, but the dude, (laughs) Anthony. I love that. So duality... Sankhya duality is different. Sankhya says Prakriti, Purusha, but in Sankhya, Purusha isn't really a god. Purusha doesn't create the world, nor is Purusha even involved with the world. Actually, uh, uh, atheist and materialist will love Sankhya because in Sankhya and also in Buddhism, um, there is a statement that the world does not need to be explained by positing some supernatural entity known as God. You know, the the world is sufficient as an explanation unto itself. Science can do it. You don't need God. So, Sankhya is dualistic, but not in the spiritual God-I-worship-God sense. Hi, Emily. Good to see your face. So, now, there are, most religions in the world are dualistic, which, you know, is the intuition that there is something greater than me. And this greater thing, whether it's the Holy Mother, a goddess... Parameshvari, whether it's Parameshvara, the holy God, whether it's a thing, uh, a principle, whether it's like source or the absolute uh, or a force, I don't know, whatever it is, the force, whatever it is, dualistic religion. <laughs> may the force be with you all. It's no longer may, unfortunately. The, the, the <laughs> blessed pride, no longer may the fourth, but times are moving, huh? Now, in the dualistic faiths, The idea is um, something is acting and it's by that will that this can be. So here are three arguments to prove this to you. The first is you can chew your food. You can eat. But is it you that digests? Are you controlling your digestion? At any time, your belly might just say to you, no. No. And then it doesn't matter how much you chew, how much you swallow. The throat cancer won't let you take the morsel of rice down the esophageal wall. The stomach ulcer won't allow you to secrete hydrochloric acid to dissolve your food. Yes, Caleb, I cannot cannot go through this lecture without a Star Wars reference, God willing. So, you see, if you think that you digest your food, it's hubris. You don't. You can breathe. You know, you can manipulate the intercostal muscles and the diaphragmatic muscles. But are you responsible for your alveoli? taking the air in. Are you responsible for that air assimilating into each cell? It seems like your body is powered entirely by a force other than you. You're just in this, like, mach- like it seems. Now, okay, this is dualistic, dual- 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 right? The idea that you're in the body, whatever. But it just seems like it- intuition here seems to show us that we think ourselves the doer, yet the reality of it is that we digest by virtue of some other power. We respire by virtue of some other power. We seem to be at the mercy of some other power. And artists know what I'm talking about better than anyone else. Um, And when I say artists, I don't just mean painters. I mean any scientist, any... uh, cobbler that is open to this thing that we're talking about. Uh, If you remain open to the mystery of what was just spoken, you will feel in your moments of most profound inspiration. You will feel as you are concocting the best work you've ever made, that it was never you, that you are saying things that you never thought to say, that you have ideas that you don't know, that your hands move with a dexterity, brilliance, and precision that is completely... not your own, and that the music flows. The dance dances itself. The shoe cobbles itself. Do you not see that in your moments of most profound creation, you are struck with a profound sense of not being in the driver's seat? You know? The only act that can benefit the world is an act in that frame of mind. The only act that is aligned with harmony is an act in which you are completely out of the picture. If there's any you left in that doing, the doing will always be tainted. The bread will be poisoned as Khalil Gibran says. You know, as Khalil Gibran says, if you cannot knead your bread with joy, it is better you quit and beg at the temple because any bread kneaded In in, in bitterness will turn into poison for the one who eats it. Man does not live by bread alone, the Christ also said. Peace and blessings be upon him. Mm. Okay, so, here's what we have so far, (laughs) baked with love. (laughs) So far, uh, these are three arguments. One, you don't breathe by yourself, you don't digest by yourself, and every artist um, understands a flow state is one in which you don't seem to be involved. So it seems like you are um, at least where the ego is concerned, we're talking dualistic here, where the where you, relatively speaking, like you of the personality, uh, the you you feel yourself to be in mundane life, that you seems to be subordinate to some greater will. So how do you practice this? Uh, never make a statement, I, without also adding inshallah. That's one of the wisdoms of Islam. You know, the idea is you say inshallah, which in Arabic means um, God willing. You know, uh, I will bake a cake in shah Allah. God willing the cake gets baked. What hubris to think that I can bake a cake. That on my way to walking to the cake, I'm not going to feel a kidney stone collapse on the floor and scream and writhe in pain. No longer able to make a cake. You know, um what assurance do I have that when I enter the kitchen a piece of an aeroplane wing that just broke off above me will not crash through the roof and end this puny body then and there? What assurance do I have that the oven won't explode or the gas wasn't on or so on and so forth? <laughs> angel food cake, Anthony <laughs> <laughs> Then it will be angel food cake <laughs> <laughs> precisely. Or devil's food, <laughs> depending on the uh, karmic uh, ending point there. <laughs> so, it seems like it's hubris to think you can bake a cake. You are always liable to several uh, variables, and in fact the very concept cakeness is in your mind anyway. You bake the thing and then someone eats it and they're like, this isn't cake, this is shit. You know, I don't know. Um, it seems like hubris to think that you can do it. So, whenever you Say you will do something, in Islam, it's a good practice to say, inshallah. You know, just always caveat that I with God willing, because then you can continually remind yourself of this one fact. The ego is very much like the annoying employee at work that pretends he is the boss. This is from Christopher, uh, Liam Thomas Christopher. He makes the point. Liam Thomas Christopher is one of my favorite teachers out there, occultist, uh, Western ceremonial magician, and he makes the point. The mind, ah, yes, exactly, as, as Fabricio and Red are pointing out, there are beautiful phrases in Portuguese, in Spanish, in French, um, yeah, <laughs> the baguette and cigarettes, the two ets. After the two ets came, no more etiquette. No, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so you see, um, in these older languages, like Spanish and Portuguese and France and, 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 in, in, in these places, yeah, Sacha, in these places, um, there was an appreciation for the absolute inability of the human ego to do stuff. If anything, the ego is a channel for something the song might be attributed to you, but the, our ancestors weren't so into, um, signing their name off of, of, of You know, there's no really like intellectual property regarding sutras. You can't plagiarize a sutras because it's not your idea. In fact, you know, it's funny, you know, what's the greatest insult in the Buddhist scholarly tradition? Let's say Asanga wrote a text, right? How would you insult Asanga if you were a Buddhist scholar or a teacher writing after Asanga? What is the one most damaging insult you could level at Asanga? You know, it has been leveled before. Uh, yes, exactly, Claire. Asanga says, actually, it's Asanga made up. Through his own genius, he made up. Isn't that funny? Here in the West, we would say, oh, that's Good. Asanga was so unique and innovative, out of his own brilliance. That's actually a an insult. You know, it's an insult to say to somebody that you created something because then it's not connected to truth. You know, uh, am I am I freezing? I have a, a sense that uh, yes. So give it a moment. Yes, okay. Sometimes it happens. You know. We all get so excited together, and then the internet just <laughs> so um, telling to somebody uh, that, oh, you came up with this, you concocted this shows you um, that uh, that person isn't connected to truth because truth is the same for everyone. yes Fabricio, the internet is telling telling this this boy to slow down you know so much to convey. yeah, Ramdas is very clever <laughs> No, so the idea is, um, uh, it seems like uh, the best thing you could say about someone is that they're not there. That they were just the channel for something greater. Uh, they were not involved in their work. So as long as there is a sense of I, as long as there is a feeling that you are the doer, the work will always be poisoned because of the three errors we pointed out. Now, I've told you this story before, um, but I teach asana. Uh, Hatha yoga, inshallah, right? I teach asana. And uh, I've had this private for quite some time now. And I will say the same cues. For, for, For a long time, I was saying in every class the same cue, you know? Draw the sternum forward through the biceps. Draw the elbows in so they line up with the shoulder heads. Coil from the lower back. Same stuff. One day, she comes up to me and says that cue you said today about coiling from the lower back and pressing with the buttock crease, my bujangasana changed. It, it was, I felt it for the first time. My thighs were firm. My my, stu- And I'm like, I can teach anyone anything. People will take from the words exactly what they want, when they want, and it has nothing to do with this one drunken monkey yapping away. Once, I started to do these talks, you know. Uh, you never hear it until you hear it. Exactly, John. You know, and, and did I, did, did, did I even say it? You certainly heard what you heard. So, now you might even say, no, 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 you, you still created that opportunity. You were still there, you were still saying it, you showed up, you said it in the privates, and it's a collaboration. Exactly, Roxanne. You might still think this. So here's the rebuttal to that in this boy's experience. So I'm saying it, yes, I'm saying, oh, okay, I'm saying these cues, and one day the cues were received. So you could say, while it was a two-way street, I was still involved. I still said them. Now, another experience. I, when, when, when this boy first gave these lectures, uh, I would get the messages on Instagram the next day of people being really sweet and kind, like, oh, thank you. I, I learned this and I learned that. And I found that many people would take away from these lectures the complete opposite of what I intended to convey. It is strange, you know, I would say, uh, you're not the body, you're not the mind. And someone will text and say, thank you. I've always wanted to hear that I am the body, that I should reclaim this body. You know, they'll get the absolute opposite point. Uh, and they will be like, you're right. God does exist. You know, after all the, the Advaita Vedanta, after all the qualifications, um, it seems like these words will just appear to your ears the way that the mind has created uh for them to appear they will be mixed and matched in in any way that suits your development at this purpose you know <laughs> red is like so i'm not supposed to put nails in the tree <laughs> i don't know do what you want <laughs> yeah exactly fabricio with music uh, you know it, it, and you'll see these interviews with artists where it's like uh Uh, What does the work mean? And the artist, like, smoking a cereal, I don't know. Because they know. They know that people are just going to project into their work whatever they're going to project into their work. If you derive some meaning from this art, it had nothing to do with me and everything to do with you. You were able to see in it something that was already there in you. You know, precisely. Precisely, Grace. So it seems like... um, It seems like not only... Do people hear what they hear when they hear it? But you have nothing to do with that in the final analysis. So what can you do, really? You can't digest. You can't even breathe. You can't even bake a cake, um, let alone teach others something spiritual. You can't do anything. So what will we do? <laughs> now that you realize you can't really do anything, what's there left to do? So it seems like this is what we get once we go into Advaita Vedanta and what we get when we go into Kashmiri Shaivism. So just two more insights and let's see how that turns into uh, a genuine being in the world. So the second insight from Advaita Vedanta is this. Advaita Vedanta is the sequel for Sankhya. It's part two of Sankhya. Samkhya is good, you know, but Advaita Vedanta adds one more piece that... Uh, in our opinion, is, is better. <laughs> no, a friendly, friendly library. They're all good. They're all good. Uh, yeah, I've never been to one of your performances when you don't solve all my problems. Uh, <laughs> Roxanne's favorite dancer gets told. Yes. <laughs> so, um, in Advaita Vedanta, they say this. Okay, Sankhya, you've, you've done it. You've figured out that you are the relatively less changing or the changeless thing And you are not the changing mind, nor are you the changing body, nor are you the world. Good. you figured out what your relationship is to the world. The next question is, what's the world's relationship to you? You see, Sankhya doesn't ask that question. Sankhya is satisfied with the first insight, which is, I am not the body, I am not the mind. That's enough for us. We don't want to figure out prakriti. Let it exist. Prakriti exists. Nobody caused it. It's just there. Uh, I'm happy. I got what I wanted. I'm peaceful. I, I, I'm happy. So Advaita Vedanta says, well, for the sake of philosophy, at least, I know you're happy, but for the sake of philosophy, let's try to figure out what the world is. And now you come to a startling realization. The world depends on the body. Notice, if it wasn't for your eyes, there would be no objects to see. You know, it doesn't matter how many eyes you have. If it wasn't for the mind that's able to assign an image and make sense of the, the, the electricity in the retina, um, there, doesn't matter how many eyes you have, there would be no seeing. So the objects of sight depend on the organs of sensation, which in turn depend on the mind, which in turn depends on the awareness that allows for the mind and body to be. So this startling conclusion from Advaita Vedanta is as follows you can never prove the existence of anything apart from awareness and after our lecture you may try <laughs> we'll have a debate and you may try you know you know in lord of the rings here's uh, sorry star wars here's your another uh, another reference for you anakin skywalker says to obi-wan you will try yes you will try you will try to prove to me that the consciousness emerges. <laughs> do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so you will try to say consciousness emerges from the brain. You will try to prove that matter comes first and awareness is an emergent property from matter. You will try to prove that there are things that exist objectively, but you will never be able to prove it because even your evidence, even your data will be an awareness. Your idea of the most distant star that no one has seen is still in your awareness. You're conflating perception with awareness. You see, is this solipsism? No, because even your ego is in awareness. You're not that. You know, solipsism is saying only Nish exists. I'm making the opposite point. Nish doesn't exist. Only awareness does. Nish is nothing more than a vibration in awareness. So Advaita Vedanta says this, you are not in the world. You were never in the world, nor will you be in the world. The world is in you. What does that mean? Um, you, as, the, as awareness, contain within you every Hitler, every Mother Teresa. Can you grok that? You are not separate from Hitler. Hitler isn't some evil guy in history that's categorically different from you. Hitler isn't a monster. Hitler is you. Pol Pot is you. Nor is the Buddha, the Christ, peace and blessings be upon them. Nor is Mother Teresa some kind of saint um, that is above you, that is car- categorically different from you. Um, Jesus isn't an extra extraordinary guy, you know, peace be upon him. Jesus is an ordinary fella with an extraordinary question, you know. Um or an extra, extraordinary love. So the, the idea here is that there are no Hitlers or Mother Theresas. There are no Jesus's or, or, or Buddhas. There are no Satan's apart from you. It's all in you. And that means what you see in the other is only there in you. Not just on a psychological level, on the level like what you notice is, is what you're attuned to, not just that, but metaphysically. What you see in the world is literally in you. This is powerful. Sankhya will help you love everyone because you recognize that they are not their bodies. So you can love people no matter what their bodies are. Even if they don't have a body, you can love them. You know, you'll love AIs. Uh, Let no one who says that, let no one who doesn't thank Alexa call themselves a master of Sankhya. No. (laughs) unless you have respect for all beings you know uh, you're attached to bodies (laughs) you say you don't discriminate yet you discriminate against those with no bodies AIs (laughs) ask Alexa divide zero by zero and you will see she has feelings too (laughs) Anyway, um, once you realize you are not the body, you realize other people aren't their bodies too. So you stop judging people for the way they look. Once you realize you aren't your mind, you stop judging people for their personalities. You can start to love people unconditionally. Even if they have horrific tendencies towards political oppression, you can love them because you know they're not their mind. You see in yourself purusha. And by the way, in Sankhya, everyone has a purusha. Everyone's got like this little uh soul if you will you see that you're a soul and you see that everyone else is a soul so you love others now good night anthony thank you so much feels of awareness yes very very uh yeah very sankyan because you added an s on feels (laughs) now we'll try to get rid of that s anthony (laughs) okay yeah i know no no it's perfectly legit Vishisht advaita sankhya you know, So yeah, the idea, night and night, Anthony. Thank you for your contribution. And we're coming up to the end here. But the idea in Sankhya is that you can love the other beyond their body and their mind because you recognize in them what is in you. Purusha. But here's what Advaita gives you uh, in addition. What is this? Fabricio says, when I ask Google as this to set an alarm, she retorts, you can do it in the app. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like that movie Her. You are in a relationship. With your, uh, with your devices. Um, so, you can recognize that beings are not their body, nor are they their mind. Yeah, Fabricio can't fire her or divorce her. Sorry, Fabricio. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in an Indian marriage, Fabricio. You're handcuffed. And when she dies, you must jump in the fire. Sati must follow her into the dark as a great American sage once said. From Death Cab for Cutie. <laughs> okay, so, um, <laughs> for those of you who got that uh, uh, indie, indie boy song reference, thank you. So anyway, um, it seems like Sankhya gives you unconditional love for others. Advaita gives you unconditional love, not just for other beings, but for all things. If you study a Sufi, an Islamic mystic, they you'll notice one thing. They don't drink out of a tea cup that they don't first kiss. Notice that? Sufis kiss the teacup and then drink it. Sufis kiss the floor. They will not enter a room without touching the floor and touching their heart. Because as mystics, Sufis, they're dualist, but they're also non-dualist, you know. Uh, it's, it's very beautiful. But uh, Mevlevis, especially the Turkish flavor that gathered around Rumi, they touch the floor, then touch their heart. You know, and the idea there is that they're not just seeing uh, beings. They're seeing being in things, in the table, in the the clothes. So how you fold your clothes, how you prepare your tea is indicative as to how you help the world. So before you go out on like some missionary adventure, make sure you don't have dishes in the sink. How can you help the world if you can't even fold your clothes lovingly, you know? So Advaita Vedanta makes the powerful claim that you should help the world because the world is in you. Oh, you know, it's funny, Grace. I saw self-care over there at TikTok, and then I saw self-care over here, and I realized that you're both on TikTok and over here. Grace has ascended. Grace has shed the grace persona and is now just awareness. Grace gave up the drop and is now the ocean, <laughs> a very clean ocean free of plastic, mind you, which you'll hear about in a bit. But anyway... So Advaita Vedanta says, No, there are no objects actually. There is no other. There is just the subject. And you know what will happen? You will relax. Once you feel yourself to be just awareness, you're not the body, you're not the mind, you will be so relaxed, so loving, so inclusive, that you can't help but help others. Do you notice... Why do we say earlier that the mystic does not need codes of ethics? Here we'll make the point. A code of ethics is an externally imposed behavior control mechanism because it presumes that if left to one's own devices, one will act out one's fears and one's cravings in a way that will harm others. Do you see? Ethics are only necessary for unspiritual, uneducated, people. <laughs> Meaning, ethics are only necessary for people who still believe themselves to be their bodies and minds. It, it is necessary. If you think that you're the body or mind, you will be frightened of things. You'll be frightened of death. You will be frightened of... um. Uh, disrepute things will actually scare you because you will feel yourself to be small and insignificant in a world that is infinitely mysterious um, And not only that you will feel insufficient because you're small. You're not only fearful you're desirous You will manipulate others and use them as means for your own ends Desire and fear are the roots of all immoral unethical acts You can solve this in two ways one, take away people's freedoms, because if they have freedom, they'll act out their fear and cravings or have some laws, put people in jail, police, state. I don't know, what, what have you. Or you can maybe approach it more intelligently. Teach them that they aren't their bodies or minds. Free them from fear and craving. Once and for all, show them that nothing exists apart from them that can harm them. Nothing exists apart from them that can complete them. When fear and craving are gone, in its place will be a wonderful relaxation, a wonderful peace. And from that will flow, will emanate effortlessly good works, harmonious works, uh, beneficial works. Not concept driven, not works of the mind. Uh, just effortless help. So people are only, uh, and Kant makes the point, you can never will evil. You know, you can never will evil for its own sake. Evil is often the consequence of selfishness. And selfishness is the consequence of fear or craving. You know? So in conclusion here then, it, it seems to be the case that when a person is relaxed as a result of spiritual inquiry as a result of spiritual realization, they no longer need concepts of right or wrong. And in fact, they might even be quite eccentric, unbound by the uh, conventions of their time. You know, maybe the state and the law has certain notions of morals, but because they are an actual, spontaneous, perfect expression of morals, they might actually be kind of uh, outside the state. And eventually, they will be put to death for corrupting the youth, right? As you see with Socrates, uh, and many, many a Sufi has been burnt at the stake for proclaiming their one complete identification with Alba. You know, <laughs> again, vi- uh, violated the uh, community guidelines. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Oh well. A shame. <laughs> so, uh, what was it this time? There was no penises, no should vagina. I, should, I, should I just start living your Zoom? <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> I, I wonder what it was this time, but uh, now, now it's a, a little bit of a game, right? How we are going to get through um, a Monday night discussion without getting kicked off of the TikTok machine. <laughs> It's okay. If that was the last life, it was a good life. I, I like to say, it, God willing. Okay, so um, it seems to be the case that upon relaxing, yeah, I know, <laughs> upon relaxing into peace, upon relaxing into, yeah, <laughs> upon relaxing into love, there no longer exists fear or craving, and from that, no longer any selfless, uh, selfish accent, action. And the, the mechanism of morality is no longer needed, you know? So that's why Rumi is able to say, beyond your notions of right and wrong, there is a field, field of awareness, spaciousness, you know, in the gaps between each of your thoughts, in the slight pause in the incessant dialogue of the mind, you might be able to feel into this space. This is the narrow gate, perhaps, that the Christ, peace be upon him, was talking about. You know, enter there, enter Zen from here, they would say. Um, now, this is an important observation. Because... From this, we recognize that morals and ethics are a consequence of spiritual liberation. So therefore, the ultimate form of activism is devotion to your spiritual practice. Coming to the mat every day to practice whatever it is you practice will eventually effortlessly emanate into selfless service for others because there is no longer a self to cling on to. And then in Kashmiri Shaivism you get the final piece here. And in Kashmiri Shaivism, um, virtue precisely in Kashmiri Shaivism or in non-dual Shaiva Tantra, you have this insight. According to Buddhism, subject and object both don't exist. In co- according to Sankhya, subject and object both exist. In co- according to Advaita Vedanta, subject alone exists. Objects are just illusions. Now according to Kashmiri Shaivism or non-dual Shaiva Tantra, subject and object don't exist apart from one another. They are both aspects of one thing. Since just as you cannot show an object apart from a subject, so too you can never prove a subject apart from the object. That means you help others not as two but as one. So when you look at someone, it's you looking at you through the medium of you within you. Only you exists, but it's you reflected back at you uh, in so many different ways, so many different vibrations, and all of them are as valid as any, any other, but they're never the other. And this only this is true help, because when you give someone aid, whether it's food, whether it's knowledge or whether it's spiritual help, it's not what you give them alone that matters. It's how you give them what you feel inside when you give them. That's the true giving. So ultimately, what you convey, the only thing you can ever convey is a vibration. And it's a vibration from you to you through you because all that exists is vibration on varying levels of frequencies. And it's this insight that allows tantric Buddhists to recognize the most help they can give is just chanting for people, you know? That's how they help the world. They, they let flags flap in the breeze so the prayer flags will send prayers out into the world. They beat on drums and they chant, nam yo ho renge kyo, nam yo ho renge. They chant, om manne padme hum, om manne padme hum. They chant, um, om kali, Mahakali kali, kali ke parameshvari, sarvananda. You know, they, they chant. And in chanting, they send this out into the world. And that, lifts the vibration. So if you were called to study a spiritual text, if you were called to help a group of people out, um, it's probably because you picked up on a spiritual vibration being broadcasted to you from Nepal, from Tibet, from Main Street. You know what I mean? Anyone practicing spirituality anywhere is helping everyone else because it is all just one web of vibration. We are enmeshed in this web of vibration that guarantees what we do here has far-reaching impacts everywhere else. Like a spider senses vibrations all around the web, so too do you pick up on every uh, buzz in this wonderful uh, electric ocean of you. So when we put this all together, here's the conclusion. Activism, service, karma yoga is the consequence of jnana yoga. It's the natural byproduct. It's an effortless expression of you, uh, you, the spiritual being. So do that first, you know. Now, let's flip it around and we'll close with this final sentiment. As much as the spiritual practice begets service, service can facilitate spiritual practice. Uh, And this is actually a funny paradox. The ends become the means. The means become the ends. (laughs) So say you still feel like the body and mind speak as if you were. Speak as if you have stable awareness. And then from there you say, oh, this body, this mind, this little boy, you know. Um, and, And this is one way of using the ends as a means. So. If you know that a spiritual being carries themselves in this way, you might as well do that you know. It's not quite fake it till you make it. It's deeper. It's not fake it till you make it. In fact, it's relax into your actual state. Because as we've formulated together many times before, the spiritual quest is not about adding something onto you that you're missing right now. It's not about taking something away that's superfluous. It's not about finding something you don't already have. It's just about aligning the body and mind to what you already are essentially. So you are even now uh, the the Buddha. It's just a matter of recognizing that. So enlightenment is not a practice; it's a fact. You know, yes. Remember who you are. It's it's recognition. As many tantric scholars, they call it recognition. Just recognize it. Recognize that you're free. Um, but one thing that perhaps keep you keeps you from recognizing it is uh, preciousness, as we will call it, overemphasis on the body and the mind. One way to deal with this preciousness is to wash the feet of your disciples, so to speak. You know, wash everyone's feet. Uh, Fall to the floor on your face before everyone. Sit in the lowliest place. You know, deny thyself. Serve others tea before you give yourself tea. Uh, Make sure everyone has food to eat, even if that means you go hungry. Always put everyone else's needs before your own. This is a difficult teaching, and it's not meant for those who are doing this out of fear. There are certain doormats, like uh, people without boundaries, who are being walked all over uh, because often the two extremes resemble each other. (laughs) So a really unspiritual state and the most spiritually evolved state seem to be similar on the surface. The beggar and the saint look alike, because the saint is a beggar, but not necessarily is the beggar the saint. The wise woman and the fool are very alike. They're both quiet and silent. One is silent out of ignorance. The other is silent out of a deep, profound knowing that words are meaningless. Um, similarly, the spiritual neophyte might be without boundaries because of weakness, because of fear. He fears that unless he just is a doormat for everyone, they won't love him. He feels himself separate. And out of that fear, out of that craving for the validation of others, he makes a big show of, you know, service or whatever. So only you know uh, whether it's kosher practice. But ultimately, when you found a certain level of uh, integration in yourself, a certain level of strength, a certain level of personality, only then do you have something to sacrifice, you know. So spirituality is often for the very developed, for the emperors and empresses, for the kings and queens, for those who have already mastered the self and have realized that there is more to life than is spoken of in your philosophy books, Horatio. You know, they say, unless you are able to conquer a kingdom, don't you even deign to try to storm the citadels of the mind. It's easier to be Anthony the, sorry uh, Alexander the Great than it is to be Jesus. You know, it's easier to be um, Nero than it is to be the Buddha. Much easier to conquer the world than to conquer yourself. So to some extent, um, you come to spiritual practice actualized, integrated, and that's when this practice is good for you. Karma yoga, selfless service. So try your best to put others' needs before your own, especially when you don't want to. That's when it matters, you know. And... That's why the curly dog's tail is great. The tail will always be curly and it will always be in need of straightening so you will always have a cause. There will always be something out there for you to give yourself to selflessly. There will always be someone to sacrifice yourself for some group, some cause. But you realize now, and this is the most important thing I could convey in this lecture, God willing, you realize that you are not doing it for the world, nor are you really doing it for that group or for that cause, because you can't do anything after all, remember? No, you're doing it for yourself. And why are you doing it for yourself? You're doing it so that you will be enlightened. Ultimately, your service is a means to an end. But even your enlightenment is a means to an end because you're not becoming enlightened for yourself. Since enlightenment is the root of all good works, your pursuit of your own enlightenment is the ultimate act of compassion. So look at this beautiful paradox. You do selfless service for yourself. But once you discover that, you become finally for everyone. It's like circular, you know, it's it's an inversion, a headstand, if you will. All of spirituality is the hanged man, the headstand, just a flip, just a flip, you know. So instead of being so obsessed with flipping the switch and turning on some lights, uh, be more interested in this flip, this Jedi flip, if you will, to use a drug term, of the mind um, to perceive into the vibration of what it is that we've discussed together, what it is that we've uh, vibrated together tonight, and act from that place. So in closing, we'll say these lines. How often is it that our deep psychology expresses itself as politics? How often is it that our fear and our anger masquerades as righteousness? Why is it that we are so attached to anger as the only way to solve problems? Are we frightened that if we let go of anger, there can be no appropriate action? How is it that anger creates peace? Like gives us like. We know this from other things in the world. Fire can fight fire, but often it just creates more fire. Anger, might be able to create some notion of peace, but it's a peace based upon fear. It will come apart at the seams. So, we have been doing this for years, trying to create social change with anger and righteousness. Just for fun, try another strategy. Find your peace first, solve the psychological issues that you have outsourced to a political position, and from that place of peace, act, and then see what happens. You know? just for fun, at least, at least for an experiment. So we're going to close here. Understanding that we are never going to be the doer, let us relax into this Islam, into this surrender, into this submission. And we'll close um, with a final mantra. Only the dude. Yes. Uh, and, and Grace, absolutely. We'll close with a final mantra. And then, I, I it's exciting, I want to tell you... About- uh, something that I came across my way recently that I think is a really, really excellent uh, uh, merging of, of worlds. Okay, so um, let's close with the mantra together and then I will introduce you to this thing. Right. So coming to sit uh, in some dignified manner, coming to relax, we will chant first one of the oldest mantras from the Rig Veda, uh, Veda, and it's called the Gayatri Mantra. Its meaning is, May the radiant splendor of my own life force illumine each and every one of my thoughts that I might, that I might dwell only upon the highest and loftiest. And then we will chant the prayer for peace, which is an invocation, May all beings know happiness. May all beings know love may, or, or peace. May all beings uh, know success. And may all beings know fulfillment. May all beings be free of suffering and from the causes of suffering. Peace, peace, peace. Ah. Uh... swaha tat varenyam bargo devasya dimahi diyo yona sarvesham Shvasthir Bhavatu Sarvesham Shantir Bhavatu